Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Excorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. Do you want to hear something scary? The nights are getting longer. A chill is filling the air. So it's time to tell ghost stories. It's scary tales of villains, both on earth and elsewhere. And share what we saw in nightmares. Horror movies and horror stories and ghost stories have the power to scare us because they're pointing to something real. So I'm going to talk about nightmares And I'll share some that I had when I was a child that still terrify me. And then haunted houses, both real ones and the kind you see cropping up during October. And then we'll talk about ghosts. So I want to start by sharing two nightmares I had uh, from my childhood. So the very name nightmare comes from the old pagan belief that a kind of a demonic creature called a mare would haunt you at night and pound upon your chest. So this is why you wake up with your heart beating wildly when you've had a nightmare. But in the Catholic Church, there's also a long-standing tradition of praying against nightmares, praying to be spared these nightly visitations of something scary. So an old monastic night prayer goes, and we're here at Benedictine College, so it's appropriate to talk about monastic night prayers. But this one goes, Vest us with the weapons of light. Deliver us from nocturnal fears and from everything that lurks against us by night. Grant us sleep, given for the renewal of our weakness that is free from every diabolical fantasy. So the the prayer assumes two things. It assumes that there's something that lurks against us at night— and that nightmares we do experience are diabolical fantasies. So I'm going to share. I remember two nightmares that I experienced as a child. I don't know, seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Both worked by attacking the sources of safety in my life, my father and my mother. In the first one, I was walking with my parents outside the Fry's grocery store. I think it was Fry's. This was a grocery store in Tucson, Arizona in the 1970s when I noticed oil dripping from the bottom of a motorcycle. And you know how oil makes a rainbow in puddles of water, and when you're a kid especially, you're fascinated by this, at least I was. So I stared at it for a while, and then when I looked up, my mom and dad were gone. So I looked frantically around for them, and I decided to go out into the parking lot to look for them. So I'm going through rows and rows of cars in this scary dream. Maybe it was just one row. I don't remember. I just remember big vehicles looming above me. I was too small to see over them to see where my parents were. And I came out between two cars and I heard squeak, squeak, squeak. And I looked to my left. There's a small little man with shaggy hair who was riding up on a tricycle. Okay. He was an adult, but he was riding on a tricycle. And something about him terrified me. You know how you get this sort of presence of evil that you feel around something in a dream? Well, I felt it here looking at this guy. Squeak, squeak, squeak. Right? So he comes riding up and uh, I start bawling. I was so afraid and so upset. Uh, 
And he looked at me with his eyes filled with genuine concern. He said, why are you crying? What's wrong? And uh, I could barely blurt out uh, through my tears, I can't find my daddy. And he looked at me utterly perplexed. Again, with genuine sincerity, he said, what do you mean, Tommy? I'm your daddy. I woke in bed, panting, out of breath, terrified. And then dreams terrify us, right? I mean, in the same way horror movies do, by attacking our hope. Because I think somewhere deep inside we realize there's something out there that's unseen that we need to worry about. And there really is. What we learn in the faith is that the devil is a kindergartner compared to Jesus and Mary. But there really is something out there. So another uh, dream I had kind of attacked my mother. It didn't start that way. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would look at the foot of my bed. And to this day, I'm not sure whether it was a dream or a hallucination, whether I actually woke up or whether I stayed asleep and dreamed that I looked at the foot of my bed. And there would be a girl standing there, expressionless, longish brown hair, I can still picture her, uh, staring at me. And I don't remember, I say expressionless, she didn't have a creepy, scary face like uh, a little girl in a horror movie. She just was staring and she didn't look particularly benign or particularly malign. She was just staring at me. Well, it would scare the daylights out of me because there wasn't supposed to be somebody in my room. I remember trying to speak to her a couple of times and got no reply. So this happened again and again. And you know what? It happened. We changed my bed to the other side of the room and then it happened the last time. So I woke up and looked at the foot of my bed and the little girl was there. And for some reason this time I was terrified. So I screamed out for my mother and my mother walked into the room and this girl leapt into the air like a cat and landed on my mother and like started biting her neck. (laughs) And that time I know it was a dream because it wasn't a hallucination. My mother didn't come into the room unless I hallucinated my mother coming into the room. At any rate, I pinched myself, I think, and woke up and panting again in bed and realized that this was just a bad dream. Um, And um, if anybody feels like they're worried about me, I haven't had the dream since. This was just when I was a little kid. I wasn't undergoing any trauma at the time. Uh, But it made me think take nightmares seriously and think about them deeply. In fact, scientists now suggest that dreams are kind of a coping mechanism. They provide a kind of exposure therapy that allows you to confront situations in your mind at night that you know you can't handle to try to learn how you could handle them. Being alone in a parking lot, maybe for the first one. Uh, I don't know what the second one was helping me cope with. Maybe meeting new people. I don't know. Anyway, Of course, there's lots of dreams in the Bible, and you can read some dreams in the Bible and take them as, you know, what they are. They're premonitions of something that's going to happen. But I personally like the book of Sirach, where it talks about dreams. And it says, A man of no understanding has vain and false hopes, and dreams give wings to fools. It says, Divinations and omens and dreams are folly, and like a woman in travail, the mind has fancies. 
unless they are sent from the Most High as a visitation. Do not give your mind to them, for dreams have deceived many, and those who put their hope in them have failed. I think that's good advice, inerrant advice, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us, don't be afraid about dreams. Dreams are some kind of manifestation of some kind of thing that's going on in your brain, nothing more, nothing less. All the same, if you want to rewind and write down that monk's prayer, you could pray that tonight. So next we want to talk about haunted houses, right? It's October, it's Halloween time, it's time for people to go to haunted houses. I remember going when I was a kid to haunted houses. Um, and most of them are just that. So the first kind of haunted house I want to talk about is this harmless kind. Harmless mostly, let's say it that way. My daughter hosts an Oktoberfest. It's a lot of fun. They do a haunted hayride where some of the kids dress up and kind of come out of the, you know, bushes and, you know, stagger toward the hayride. So I don't know that that's a bad haunted house. I think that's a good haunted house. Uh, this is the kind I remember from the 1980s where you get little adrenaline jolts. I remember I was at a haunted house with friends of mine and one of the monsters accidentally nudged one of my friends and another one of my friends literally hit the monster to, to fight back for his friend. So that was cool. That made, you know, showed that he was willing to stand up for his friend against monsters even. And maybe these can even be a good training ground for how you're going to deal with real life, right? Because what happens when we see things that are frightening to us? We have a flee, freeze, or fight mechanism, right? My friend clearly has a fight mechanism. I tend to have a flee mechanism, I think. A lot of people have a freeze me mechanism. Uh, there's a woman who runs a haunted house who talks about the people they have to go into the haunted house and actually help them out because they freeze up and they can't do anything. They can't go forward or backward. Uh, so that's what happens when you go to these haunted houses when they get a little bit too real. But the next kind of haunted house I want to talk about is the extreme horror houses that have popped up in various parts of the country. Have you heard about these things? There's one in Niagara Falls, Ontario that's called the Fear Factory. And it keeps a list, uh, I think it's called a chicken list, with like 200,000 names on No, it has 160,000 names on it. Uh, and they share pictures of people's terrified faces on the wall. And then on the chicken list are people who could not make it through the whole haunted house, right? These things are so terrifying that they flee or they can't make it through. A, a, a good number, a good percentage of the people can't make it through. And then a few years ago, there were news uh, reports about this haunted manor in Nashville, Tennessee, that was one, two, three, or maybe 12 steps too far uh, in the extreme horror uh, direction. It gave customers a 40-page waiver in which they had to choose a safe word that would allow them to be rescued from this experience. They didn't call it a haunted house, but an experience. And the owner reportedly has offered $20,000 to anyone who can stay in the experience until the end, but claims no one has claimed that yet, okay? So it's controversial to say the least. I don't know how much of the 40-page waiver is there to add to the fright or how much of it is just uh, covering liability because they do apparently some pretty creepy things to people when they're in this house. I would counsel staying away from a haunted house like that. I don't know that that's good for you to put yourself through that kind of 
uh, situation. I don't know that it's right to attack your hope in that way, because that's what this kind of horror does. It attacks your hope with what the makers call a rough, intense, and truly frightening experience, where each guest will be mentally and physically challenged until you reach your personal breaking point. People say that kind of haunted house is more of a torture house than a haunted house, right? So, which brings us to the next kind of haunted house, which is the real kind of haunted house. Uh, years ago, I interviewed an exorcist for an article I did for Crisis Magazine, and I still have the notes in my files. Oh my gosh, I remember reading these handwritten notes from this exorcist, uh, and it just terrified me so much. I slept for a month with holy water at the foot of my bed and sprinkling everything every time I went to bed and every time I got up. Uh, he said, I have exercised many alleged haunted homes. I believed their reports and I could feel evil presence when I entered into those rooms. Okay. So this is uh, something I tell my children about kind of experience of the demonic. It's not something you need to be afraid of any more than you are afraid of roads. Let me explain what I mean. So if you step in front of a car, you will get hurt very badly. If you run across the street without looking, you could be hurt very badly. So you should be afraid of roads. But should you live your life terrified to go near roads or live your life feeling like roads are out to get you or live your life feeling like cars are a threat to you? No, no, they're not. The cars are not a threat to you unless you place yourself in danger where there is a car, right? Uh, and this is the same way with demons and haunted houses. You are not in danger unless you place yourself in danger. Philip Koslowski, who is a, uh, a writer at Alatea, uh, so a colleague of mine at alatea.org, uh, says, when you write about these things, you should always quote for people John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Gospel of John, in answer to the question, why did God become man? There's lots of things you can answer in answer to that question, right? To teach us love, to die for our sins, lots of things you could answer. What his answer is, and he's a gospel writer, is the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, okay? So if you are afraid of any of this kind of thing, you should turn to Christ, turn to God. Which brings us to the final kind of haunted house that I will mention, and that is... Uh, well, in Protestant and evangelical circles, they call them hell houses sometimes, where you go to these experiences which basically scare you straight in the spiritual life. They show you scenes of evil that are uh, ex expressed in the Bible, and they show you what will happen if you go to hell and why you should avoid going to hell, right? Uh, I've never been to one of these things, but uh, apparently some of them are pretty well done. There's a better option, the, the Catholic Back from the Dead performances that uh, used to be done at high schools. They probably got suspended for COVID. I don't know if they're back up and running now. Uh, and also, th these are sometimes expressed in terms of a cemetery walk. And what happens in these performances is saints and martyrs, you know, young people dressed as saints and martyrs, come and address you with saints' real words about the afterlife and what to fear and about purgatory. And I think one of their big um, goals with these experiences is to teach you to pray for the souls in purgatory. So rather than be afraid this Halloween, instead of just feeling creeped out, you should take the occasion 
to pray for the group of people who really are caught in an undead world that they're longing to get out of. And those are the people in purgatory. Which brings us to our final topic, which is ghosts. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. That's what Hamlet says after one of his friends doubts the reality of the ghost of Hamlet's father who has appeared on the balustrade. That's what literature says about ghosts. But we've heard people in our own lives speak about ghosts also. For instance, a pale young woman frantically looking for something along a banister who disappears. An incoherent whisper of a childish voice announcing a presence that saps you of your energy. Then scratch marks appearing down your side. Or a little girl waking in a storm to see a beautiful lady in white hovering at her bedside. She calls out to her mother who lights a lantern and soon a muddy robed man is knocking on the door. So what I want to talk about are the three kinds of ghosts you will meet in Atchison, Kansas. I am giving this uh, podcast from the campus, beautiful campus of Benedictine College here in Atchison, Kansas. And Atchison, Kansas builds itself as the most haunted city in Kansas. And there's some unhealthy things about the fact that we bill ourselves that way, but there's also some intriguing things about the fact that we bill ourselves that way. Peter Kraft says that it's reasonable to believe in ghosts, and I, for one, believe him. He quotes a Jesuit scholastic who somehow categorized ghost sightings into, I think, more than a dozen different kinds of ghosts. Uh, Peter Kraft thought you can boil down all these different varieties of ghosts to probably three. And so I'll, what I want to do is align the three ghosts that Peter Kraft talks about with ghosts that you'll hear about if you take the haunted Atchison trolley and go on the ghost tour of our fair city. So Peter Kraft says the most familiar kind is the sad, wispy ones. They seem to be working out some unfinished business, he says. Uh, so there's an old Victorian house here in Atchison where it is claimed that there's a young woman forever going up and down the banister looking for something. And people see her, but she never interacts with people and she never tries to interfere with people. She seems to be looking for something that she never finds. Or there's the ghost that screams at midnight down at Molly's Hollow, which I don't know if I believe in that one. But... Uh, there's also a male ghost in 19th century garb that people claim to have seen walking down some of the brick-paved streets in Atchison, again with a quizzical look on his face, and then he vanishes. Which are legendary and which are real? It's hard to say. I wouldn't be surprised if most of them were legendary. But I do think Peter Kraft is on to something when he says, reasonable people report seeing these things and enough of them have reported the same kind of story that they must be true. Kreft calls these purgatorial ghosts. They are souls who were too attached to something on earth, so they're not quite ready for heaven, uh, but they're not quite ready to be damned. And for whatever reason, it's in providence that they will be working this thing out on earth. Who knows what it is? There are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, says Hamlet. Uh, and some of these things just are a mystery to us. 
These are also the kind of ghosts that you see popularly represented often, like in A Christmas Carol, where Jacob Marley was too attached to money, and so he's trapped, and that he serves as a warning to um, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, or The Sixth Sense, where there are ghosts presented who are too attached to something on Earth and have to kind of work something out before they move on. Well, the second kind of a ghost is not a ghost at all, but demonic, all right? We already talked about this when we talked about uh, haunted houses. And the most famous haunted house in Atchison is this Sally House on 2nd Street, which is, I think, an unfortunate tourist spot for a number of reasons. I don't know that that's what you want your city to be known for, and it's also really close to my house. <laughs> but um, it's a little white house that's supposed to have an impish spirit in it who torments male residents. There's a cable television ghost hunter program where people come to Sally House and claim to find evidence of ghosts. They claim to have a video of scratch marks appearing uh, on somebody's skin. I always find it uh, odd that in a, the day and age when we have such clear videography available to us, even on our own phones, that the videos of these kind of phenomenon remain looking like they were created in the 70s or 80s. Uh, all the same, there's uh, people who believe in this thing. Peter Kraft calls this kind of ghost not a ghost at all, but a malicious and deceptive spirit. They are probably the ones who respond to conjurings at seances. They probably come from hell. So in other words, he's talking about demons, not ghosts. But like I say, demons are scarier than they really are. If you don't want to get hit by a car, don't walk in the street. If you don't want to get involved with a demon, then don't play with a Ouija board. Don't do creepy, weird seance stuff. Don't cast spells and don't hang out with people who do. Thankfully, Atchison has one last example of what Peter Kraft calls a ghost, the third kind of ghost, originally cataloged by this Jesuit scholastic. Again, it's one that we don't typically think of a ghost, and I think it's a great way to end. It all started here at Benedictine College in 1856 when the pioneering Benedictine monk, Father Henry Lemke, was based in Donovan, which is nearby, and he went to make a house call with an Irish family who was very sick, and he took care of them. I think he actually had to bury some members of the family, but then he was coming home. He had fasted, of course, because he said mass out there was dressed in his monk garb. He was carrying all his stuff. He had ridden out on a horse, but then he had to walk back. <clears throat> he was trying to follow the tree line along the Missouri River when uh, one of these terrible storms that can happen in Kansas happened. And he was kind of exhausted, drained of energy. He was in this gully that was quickly filling up with water. And he was afraid he was going to die. So Father Henry was a Lutheran convert, uh, and he had always had a little bit of a suspicion of Marian piety. He hadn't 100% decided that it was okay to uh, treat Mary with the respect that the Catholic Church does. But at this juncture, he uttered Benedictine College's founder's promise to Mary, right? He said, if you help me out of this difficulty, I shall always call on thee. And his prayer was immediately answered. He looked up and saw a light in the distance and started stumbling toward the light, which turned out to be in a little house on the prairie, on the river bluff at any rate. 
and it was a little house and he went in and he recognized the woman and child that he saw there as parishioners. They were Catholics who had been to his masses in Donovan. They welcomed him in, gave him a blanket, warmed him up. He said, how is it that you put a lantern in your window? Back then, lanterns were hard to come by. Lantern oil was hard to come by and you didn't just put them in the window for no reason. The woman said that her daughter woke in the middle of the night and called out to her saying that there was a lady dressed in white at the foot of her bed. So she got up, lit the lamp to comfort her daughter, put it in the window, and the rest is history. Father Lemke stumbled into the house for safety. Two years later, in 1858, he founded Benedictine College, or the monks that he brought here at any rate founded Benedictine College. And that same year, that lady dressed in white appeared to another little girl in another small town, this time in Lourdes, France. This was when St. Bernadette saw Our Lady of Lourdes. And we very much believe that she was saw the person who was responsible for answering Father Henry Lemke's prayer. And we have fulfilled his promise. At Benedictine College, we always call on her, right? You'll find a grotto on our campus showing Our Lady of Lourdes. Incidentally, if you want to see a short film of that story of Father Henry Lemke, the ex Corte video team has put together one that we released actually a few years ago. But I'll put the link in the blog post at excorte.org, and you can uh, click on that and check it out. It's really, really well done. Kraft said this third kind of ghost is not limited to apparitions of Our Lady, although we're very familiar with many apparitions of Our Lady, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Fatima. But there's also been apparitions of other saints. You hear from people who had an apparition of their dear departed wife or somebody else in their family. It's often a comforting presence. Uh, Kraft calls them bright, happy spirits of dead friends and family, especially spouses who appear unbidden at God's will, not ours, with messages of hope and love. And that's, I think, a great way to leave this podcast, because if you're terrified by the fact that things that you can't see are all around and make bumpy noises in the night and whisper darkly near your window, uh, you should be even more comforted by the fact that we are literally surrounded by hosts of unseen angels and saints who are 100% on our side and way, way, way more powerful than anything that evil can conjure up. When you go to Mass, you're going to Mass surrounded by angels. When you kneel down to pray at night, your guardian angel, for starters, is there. And if you've ever heard from a saint who's seen their guardian angel, we're not talking about you know Casper the Friendly Ghost when we're talking about guardian angels. We're talking about formidable you know, <laughs> beings who are 100% on your side. So when you are living your Catholic life, you're praying to Our Lady who is always by your side. You're praying to Jesus who is more powerful than any creature that will ever threaten you. And you're praying with a whole host of heavenly helpers who will save you on Halloween night and every night that follows. So thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America. 
through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.